This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're back from our holiday hiatus with a renewed focus on Mexico. This weekend, Enrique Peña Nieto takes the reins as that country's next president. We'll devote most of this program to what's ahead for Mexico. But first, Colin Campbell is here with a report on Peña Nieto's trip to Washington, D.C., along with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Mexico's president-elect Enrique Peña Nieto met with President Obama this week in Washington to discuss future cooperation. Peña Nieto praised Obama for pursuing immigration reform, and both leaders agreed to work together to improve border security. Speaking about a shared vision for economic growth, Peña Nieto said he wants to strengthen the ties between the two nations. We have the opportunity to grow, and also the opportunity to integrate and to participate more with North America to obtain more jobs. Obama said Mexico has become a better partner on border, regional, and global issues. This week, Mexico's foreign minister, Jorge Castaneda, held a conference call with reporters to discuss prospects for Pinoneta's time in office. Our reporter, Zach Cohen, was on the line to hear Castaneda's advice. Castaneda said Wednesday that President-elect Peña Nieto should stop fighting the drug cartels and instead try to contain them, rather than waging what he called all-out war. What can we do about the war on drugs? Get into it. A little bit like the war in Vietnam. What can you do with it? Get out. Finish. Over. Castaneda warned against continuing outgoing President Felipe Calderón's efforts to use the Mexican military to eliminate the drug cartels. Instead, Castaneda recommended letting drug trafficking continue and focus on improving security in major cities to prevent violence against civilians. In the process of shifting focus away from the drug cartels to energy and immigration policy, Castaneda also warned the incoming Mexican government not to overhype the power of the Mexican economy. The emphasis to be based on Mexico's economy doing better than in the past is, is well placed. As long as we don't exaggerate and turn Mexico into a new Brazil, and then three years from now we'll all have to well, actually, it wasn't such a big deal after all. From 2000 to 2004, Castaneda served in the first presidential cabinet not associated with Peña Nieto's party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI. Reporting for Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen in Washington, D.C. Cuban authorities say the American contractor jailed in Cuba, Alan Gross, is in good health and does not have cancer. A recent biopsy shows that a growth on his shoulder is not cancerous. A U.S. doctor who previously examined Gross says the results are inadequate, however. Gross has been in prison for three years. He originally went to Cuba to deliver satellite equipment to Jewish communities for the U.S. State Department. His family has rallied public campaigns calling for his release, but the U.S. and Cuba have made little progress in negotiations. A 20-year-old Mexican beauty queen died in a gunfight between soldiers and the drug-smuggling gang she was traveling with. Authorities found the body of Maria Susana Flores Gomez laying on a rural road next to an assault rifle in the state of Sinaloa. This marks the third case where a Mexican beauty queen has been linked to a drug cartel, which was also the plot of the popular 2011 Mexican movie Miss Bala, or Miss Bullet. Reporting for Latin Pulse, I'm Colin Campbell. 
As promised this week, our focus will be on Enrique Peña Nieto of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. Peña Nieto will be inaugurated this weekend, and we've invited two experts to our studio to discuss the prospects ahead for Mexico. Joining us this week are Eric Olson, the co-director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, and John Ackerman of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM. Gentlemen, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Pleasure. Eric Olson, let's start with Pena Nieto's visit to Washington this week and his attempt to reframe the relationship with the U.S. as something beyond the drug war. Do you think he was successful? Well, it's too early to say. I suspect that it will be an uphill uh, process for him to do that. Uh, People in Congress in particular are concerned about the security situation in Mexico. Um, But he he made an effort at it. Uh, He met with uh, Nancy Pelosi and some people in Congress. Uh, And I think he had to walk a very fine line between trying to say he was committed to combating the narcos and, and organized crime but wanting to add this second agenda item, uh, even prioritizing that second agenda item, which is the commercial and economic ties and relationships Mexico has with the U.S. and the rest of the world. So not sure that this quick pass-through was enough to do it for him, but it's a start in his reframing the priorities in the relationship. John Ackerman, you've been very critical it, it, of Obama for meeting with him in the way No, that he no, did. not for meeting with him. I think it's great that the two presidents uh, meet each other. That's not the problem. Um, but as Eric pointed out, this was uh, a very um, a quick pass-through um, and I didn't achieve anything uh, in terms of policy or um, new relations between Mexico and the United States, um, principally because Peña Nieto is not president yet. Well, tomorrow he will be, but um, they say this is sort of a great tradition that before the presidents come into power, they pass through the United States. It's actually not true. It's only happened a couple times in the past. Um, and I don't think it's a particularly good idea because Peña Nieto doesn't have a cabinet yet. He doesn't have a policy yet. He doesn't have a government yet. Although later um, today works. He will, right. So this meeting should have been next week, not this week, when he actually has a proposal to make as a head of state. They could have a formal meeting as heads of state between Obama and Peña Nieto. Obama received Peña Nieto in the Oval Office. There was no Rose Garden press conference. Obama was in the middle of negotiating, still is, the fiscal cliff, worried about China, uh, the Middle East. Um, Peña Nieto got, you know, 15 minutes with him, 15 minutes with um, Dan Napolitano. Um, I don't think uh, Mexico or the United States come out of this meeting um, really strengthened in their relationship. Uh, I think it's a good idea to to rethink the relationship and go far beyond the drug war. That's a great idea, and I, I'm glad that Peña Nieto's team is talking about that. Um, the, the real source of um, the violence in Mexico is uh, underdevelopment, inequality, corruption. Those are things that need to be attacked and not just this kind of militarized drug war, which has been very much supported from Washington and by Obama. Um, and so that definitely needs to change. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned inequality and corruption. Um, you wrote this week about um, President Obama needs to be careful about chumming up to a party that has inequality and corruption as a paraphrase underneath it often. Sure. I keep, the, 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 the point is the following. I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that Obama and Peña Nieto shouldn't meet. Obama should ignore Peña Nieto. People have tried to say that. But that's not the case. What I'm saying is that the United States and in general the world needs to be very aware of who this 
guy is and who his his team is. And I think no one denies that. People on the, try to sort of play down the, the worries of the return of the priest, saying that Mexico is now a modern society, more modern but society, division of powers, etc. But I haven't seen anybody actually sort of defend Peña Nieto's record as a governor of, of the state of Mexico or defend the record of the pre. Um, and so it's very important that we be aware of this and in general really think beyond the bounds of presidential relationships and politics as if that's the only point of contact between U.S. And, 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 and Mexico. We need to really think about more broad-based civil society coalitions. So, Eric, help us with this. Who is Enrique Peña Nieto? What should we know that's important about him? Well, he, he's known uh, particularly because he was the governor of Mexico's most important state outside of Mexico City, Mexico State. Um, and he was governor there for six years until he left and then ran for president. Um, he, you know, he's a pretty clever and good politician, and he's um, developed an image as a young leader, uh, something new, not the old guard of the PRI. Remember that the PRI uh, was the party of the revolution, uh, in power for 71 years, and uh, Mexicans became fed up with them and tired of them for all the reasons that John has mentioned, corruption, cronyism, et cetera, et cetera. So he understood and they understood in the pre that if they were going to be successful in this presidential election, they needed a, you know, a new kind of candidate, new blood, a new generation that projected modernity and, and a change in attitude. And he succeeded in, in large part in projecting that to the Mexican populace. Um, I think, you know, I think part of it, it was his own skills politically and, and, and crafting that image for himself. Uh, part of it was problems within the other parties, uh, exhaustion uh, with 12 years of uh, opposition rule, pawn rule, and a feeling that they had not accomplished what they had promised. Uh, so there was a combination of factors that led to his um, election. The question is, is, you know, uh, is he really something new? Has the PRI itself been transformed? Um, I think the narrative that he's presented of being new and reformed uh, is one that the State Department, the White House, and most people in Congress are willing to go along with, uh, willing to accept. Uh, but I think, you know, there's some deep suspicions there, particularly in Congress. And uh, so we'll, we'll see, you know, how well he manages that. John, go ahead, please. Yeah, and these suspicions are, are, are well-founded. I mean, uh, the new PRI is a thing of the past. Uh, the new PRI was the PRI of Carlos Salinas, uh, Ernesto Cedillo. They were the presidents from 1988 to 2000. Um, they were the technocrats who broke with the dinosaurs. This was sort of the historic split, right? The dinosaurs were the local um, uh, governors um, who were more um, uh, committed to um, clientelistic um, corporatist politics. Um, Salinas and Zidio supposedly had a more national vision, international vision. They're both, you know, graduates from Yale and Harvard. Salinas from Harvard, um, uh, Zidio from Yale, uh, um, spoke English, very cosmopolitan. In my view, their presidencies were not particularly successful. They were just as corrupt as the dinosaurs, but that was at least an attempt to sort of reform in sort of this modernizing way. Um, but that pre is, is gone. Well, Peña Nieto tries to um, sort of hark back to the days of Salinas, but Peña Nieto is quite literally a dinosaur. He is 
was the governor of the state of Mexico, which is one of those nine states in Mexico which has never gone under democratic transition. It's been governed by the PRI for 80 years. We don't have democracy in the state of Mexico. And the state of Mexico stands out as one of the states that's most violent, most corrupt, um, uh, with uh, most important problems in terms of, of economic development. So quite literally, even though he's young and has a soap opera wife, Peña Nieto literally represents and comes from the old pre, he was born in Tlacomulco, which is the breeding ground of the old pre, you know, Hanron, Han Gonzalez, they're all from there. I mean, so we and, can't and deny that. Maybe his father a uh, leader in the pre? His, his uncle was a governor of the state of Mexico. Um, I mean, he's quite literally in the, the, this, this sort of family of sort of mafia-style politics. Now, can he break out of that? Perhaps. Does he want to? I haven't seen absolutely any indication that he wants to break out of that. And we'll see what happens in his cabinet. This is going to be transmitted today. Um, but the impression and what I've seen is that his cabinet um, pretty much reflects um, that idea of not a, a new pre of, re of, of renovation. They might have some young faces, but once again, these are the bedosaurs, right? The, the, the baby dinosaurs who are state governors. Osorio Chong, one of his um, right-hand men, was the, the uh, governor of, of the state of Hidalgo, another state which has not undergone democratic transition yet. Hidalgo has been governed by the PRI for over 80 years. And so these guys don't know what democracy is all about. They're going to have to learn really fast or Mexico can have serious problems soon. One of the interesting things about the PRI, and there have been many books written about this party, is that it's a very um, uh, big tent party. It encompasses a lot from the elite to the, the peasants' movement, and that's been its history. And so, in some ways, it's lacked a clear ideology and vision, uh, either of the left or of the right. Uh, it's been such a broad uh, party that it's become known uh, not for an ideological perspective, but as a, a doer, getting things done. And in fact, a lot of what the campaign was about uh, the presidential campaign was not about some new vision for Mexico like you might have here in the United States, but we're just going to be more effective and efficient in doing it. And we've seen since his election and now to his inauguration proposals to refashion government to make it, quote unquote, more efficient. One of the things they're doing is recreating a mega ministry, an internal affairs ministry known as Gobernación, that's going to manage and become the super ministry that coordinates all cabinet, cabinet work and so on. So they're about getting things done, being efficient, and uh, while nobody's against efficiency, uh, sometimes it's efficiency in for their self-interest, and that's where the PRI gets into trouble. Well, we will rejoin that topic about reform and trouble, perhaps, from the PRI when we come back from this break. Visiting with us today, Eric Olson of the Wilson Center and John Ackerman of the Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, Eric Olson of the Wilson Center and John Ackerman of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM, are our guests on Latin Pulse discussing Mexico and the return of the PRI, the PRI to power. Um, Professor Ackerman, you had some points that you wanted to 
to to add to our discussions yeah. about reform and the pre and how they're remaking government, what they pre- what they predicted they will do to remake government. Right. Just a couple things to bounce off what, what Eric was saying before the the, the break. Um, well, one, first of all, one of the reasons why people say we shouldn't be concerned about the return of the pre is that somehow they've learned to live in democracy over the last you know, 12 years after they lost power, they've somehow become more democratic, sophisticated. Um, there might be some members of the pre to which that has happened, but um, there's also a phenomenon which actually is more worse and not less. Um, these last 12 years has led to a strengthening of state-level powers, right, governors in particular. Um, these governors um, rule today uh, as they have always and perhaps with even more independence and impunity. We've all criticized the fact that government in Mexico is very stovepiped, and you have these little fiefdoms that uh, exist around, and there's no coordination uh, between the ministries. So you deal with that by putting them all under one roof and presumably have better coordination. The fear is that you've created this monster with no real accountability, no ability to control it. Uh, they become all-powerful and... Um, that's that's going to be the big challenge. So John Ackerman, this is one of those times when radio is insufficient because you're having a visible reaction <laughs> to this. But I think that the, the Eric's describing it, I think, quite correctly. Um, this is the pre-arriving and wanting to go uh, back to how they used to govern. I mean, quite literally. Both that this proposal. I mean, let's be. What has Peña Nieto proposed so far? Specifically, one, m- moving the federal police. Which was this was so this was the achievement of democratic transition at the federal level was the creation of two new ministries. Okay, one is the federal police, and the other is the secretary of the public function. The secretary of the public function was created in two thousand three by Vicente Fox. That um, secretariat is in charge of corrup- combating corruption at the federal level, and also, and most important, well, not most important, but the, sort of the newest part about it, why it was created as the public function, was to be in charge of civil service. So what does Peña Nieto do as his first proposals? Well, let's eliminate those two ministries. Let's eliminate the police, the police ministry, which was created in order to have a separation between political affairs, political negotiation, and police, law enforcement. Let's separate those because exactly as Eric was pointing out, historically these have been confused and that has led to not only spying but you know inefficient police work and um, uh, you know. Pu- uh, law enforcement supporting um, political work, both those sides. And um, so Peña uh, proposes, let's disappear, let's get rid of that agency and put it into back into sort of political control. And he also proposes, well, let's just get rid of the Secretary of the Public Function. We don't need that. Uh, we don't need any sort of strong controller inside. Um, I'd prefer just to, for each one of my uh, cabinet mi- uh, ministers to sort of take care of his own business. Um, now, that is uh, perhaps even more worrisome than the um, politicization of law enforcement because what that means is that there's no longer to be an agency in charge of you know, controlling transparency, corruption within good governance within the federal government. Um, and now the, the Treasury is going to do some of that, but we no longer have this. And, you know, people were worried about corruption getting worse on the Peñonetta. Well, there you have the clearest example of it. And so um, his proposals, both in the terms of law enforcement and in terms of corruption, really harken back to the past. So it's not just that he comes from personal history of, a, of the old-style old guard, but also his proposals, po- specific policy proposals today, also point back 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, just two quick comments. One is, 
I think, John, would I would agree with you that the disappearance of the Secretary of Public Function would be a real tragedy if everybody agreed they were doing a great job, but n nobody agrees they were doing a good job anyway. So I'm not particularly worried about their disappearance. We'll see. But it's a classic baby in the bathwater story here. Right, I mean, if, you right, know, we right. can't we'll throw out the baby in the bathwater. They've been highly inefficient. Calderon right. and Fox failed at combating right. corruption, but let's not let's throw out the bathwater, right. not right. the whole thing. We can't just sort of give up, right? Well, the question will be whether the new, uh, uh, the new uh, independent. Uh, agency will do any better, and I agree. I, I mean, I, that, that's a, but my other question is this: We, there, I think, John has hit, hit on several pieces that explain why uh, there may be a new face on the pre, but there's a there's a tendency back to the old ways of doing things, concentration and focus of power in certain people. The question everybody seems to be asking, though, has has Mexico itself changed? Have the Mexican people? on society has the press changed is there is there now a counterbalance to the pre's wielding of power that really barely existed prior to 2000 Televisa TV Azteca the two big networks in Mexico still seem to be pre-sponsored networks um are we really going to see that openness That's a good point Rick I I think that it's true that Mexican society has changed, and we saw that in the most recent election. So, for instance, the Yo Soy 132, this um, student movement, which suddenly erupted into the scene during the campaign, um, is a, the clearest indication of that. that you know, these were um, college students who were not willing to sort of just play along with this, this media-run campaign. And when Benignetto went to visit this um, Jesuit university, private university, they came out and they shouted him off the campus. Now, this is not exactly sort of um, uh, respectful politics by the kids. Well, it's not really debate, but it is a demonstration that there is a new generation who is critical, who is on the Internet, and who is not sort of buying these, uh, uh, these media stories about the politicians that these television um, networks are trying to sell. Um, that said, uh, you're totally right, Rick. I mean, Mexico is one of the countries with the highest concentration and media ownership in the world, right? So over 90% of, well, 95% of the um, television uh, audience, uh, you say that in, in English? Uh, publico, right? The audience. Exactly. The audience, uh, the uh, viewers, I guess would be the correct word, um, uh, are, uh, uh, get their news through um, Televisa and Tevesteca. Televisa has four or five channels, Tevesteca, three or four. So really, I mean, uh, television is absolutely controlled by two companies, in particular by one. I mean, Televisa controls 80% of that. And so what Televisa decides is news, really is news in Mexico, although there is this sort of new generational internet generation which is which is starting to come up and and, and, and might... And that's where I would have hope for, for Mexico's future. Um, actually, the vote for Peña Nieto, for instance, was not urban, urban middle-class um, reformers. Um, the Peña Nieto vote was... The, the, the poorest and most excluded people in the population, uh, many of whom were under the pressure of vote buying, um, lots of money being spent on, on that, um, but the sort of more urbanized, uh, quote-unquote middle class, I have problems with that term, we can use that, um, population voted overwhelmingly against Peña Nieto and for either José Vázquez Mota, but actually it was the leftist candidate, López Obrador, who actually took in most of that vote. Gentlemen, we have talked a lot about politics, almost zero about policy, and so um, I would be remiss. We do not have time to talk about Pemex. We do not have time to talk about energy policy, nor about these new commercial interests and other things that the new president would like to be on the table. The big elephant in the room is the drug war. Mm -hmm. Any comments about how that might be fought under this new administration? 
Um, I suspect it will be m more similar, more continuity than dramatic change. Um, but he is proposing some things that, that are different. He is proposing to make violence a, a centerpiece of what he, uh, combating violence. Um, throughout the Calderon administration, there was a dismissive attitude about the violence. John Ackerman, anything to add? I do too. I think, once again, here, Peña is actually saying the right things. It's, a lot of us have been saying this for many years, that Mexico should focus on um, the Mexican people more than anything else, right? I mean, they should be working on um, combating violent crimes, bringing down violence, and not be particularly worried about, you know, stopping drugs going to the United States, particularly now that, um, that it's being liberalized and legalized um, every more every day. You know, look at Colorado, Washington, et cetera. Um, and so he's saying that, Peña Nieto, and that sounds good. Um, but, in fact, um, he has not taken any kind of distance from um, Washington, from the United States, especially in, in this issue of, of the drug war. And that is a necessary step if he's really going to do this seriously, because um, Obama and the, and the, and the U.S. Um, government has been very clear that the militarized strategy, although they you know, have window dressing, institutional development, stuff like that, but they are very supportive of you know, the militarized drug war. And if Mexico doesn't take some sort of distance from um, uh, U.S. policy, I'm not talking about you know, breaking up relations or anything like that, but you know, take some really clear distancing that we're going to be in charge here of how this is run, um, I don't see anything actually really changing um, in the near future. Gentlemen, we have come full circle to the binational relationship. So thank you very much today. John Ackerman of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, also a visiting fellow here at American University, and Eric Olson of the Wilson Center, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, gentlemen. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. According to a bipartisan group of four influential senators, John Kerry, Richard Lugar, Robert Menendez, and Marco Rubio, the Organization of American States is sliding into an administrative and financial paralysis that is threatening to condemn it to irrelevance. The senators are right. The OAS is poorly managed. Its finances are precarious and it lacks a guiding vision. It has displayed shortcomings in conducting its core responsibilities, including the defense of democracy, human rights, and press freedom. Unfairly, however, the senators neglect to mention any OAS accomplishments or note that none of the cited problems is new. The Inter-American Dialogue's founder, Saul Linowitz, a former OAS ambassador himself, described the organization as ignored, forgotten, and irrelevant. And that was a generation ago. The OAS has seldom been held in high regard. The senators also overlooked a crucial fact about the OAS. It is a creature of 34 governments and can act only when they all substantially agree. The OAS is as effective as the member governments want it to be. More than anything, the OAS's troubles mirror the deep divisions among Latin American nations and between them and the United States. Most governments today are not taking the OAS seriously. Some are plainly hostile. Brazil has kept its OAS representative at home for the past 18 months. Argentina has not assigned an ambassador for three years, even as it finances 60% of the OAS budget.
the U.S. has assumed a largely reflexive role. Some have called it AWOL. The senators could do most for the OAS by calling on the White House and the State Department to take a more active posture. Here are some questions the senators should be asking. Is the United States assigning its best diplomats to the OAS? Is it encouraging other countries to do the same? Is the U.S. taking an energetic and constructive part in OAS policy initiatives? Is the U.S. working to build support among other countries for the needed changes in strategy, finances, and administration? What more could it do? The OAS, after all, is critical to U.S. diplomacy in this hemisphere. The U.S. government does not participate in other regional groupings. And the summit of the Americas is also now threatened. The dissolution of institutional ties between Latin America and the United States would not be good for either. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Jordan Derry and Colin Campbell. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012 Las Rocas Productions.